thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 93. Hold on to your hats because this week, retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Michael Phillips joins us to discuss the still highly classified Lockheed U-2 Dragon Lady spy plane. First imagined during the height of the Cold War, but still highly relevant today, 60 years later. The reason the airplanes still exist is all the crap that we got on the most sophisticated spy satellites in the world can be put on a U-2. And it's the bad guys don't know when it's coming because the sophisticated bad guys know where all the satellites are. They know when they're coming over. And so that's why it still lives. And the handful of airplanes that we have, they fly every day. Somewhere in the world, some agency of the government needs something for various uh, reasons, whether it's nefarious or not. And uh, the U-2s fly all the time. Here comes the fun part. baby. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show. This is episode 93. I am your host, Jello, and we'll get to the U2 in just a bit. But first, let me introduce our co-host. Trey Kalish first joined us back on Night Carrier Landings. Then he helped out, I think, during the F-117 episode. And he's back today now as a retired United States Navy Lieutenant Commander. How's it going, Fish? Going pretty good. Thanks for having me back, Jello. Uh, real excited to be here for this episode. I think it's uh, kind of ironic you keep bringing me back for all of the Black episodes, <laughs> night carrier landings, F-117, now the YouTube. I was YouTube. thinking that too. Yes. So, good to be back. Thank you. All right. Good. Well, hopefully you can uh, help us understand this a little bit better and see if you have any paths crossing, if you will, with the U-2. I think last time we heard from you, you said 104 days and counting, but uh, gosh, it's been a little while. So what's new? Well, so like you said, I'm retired now. And uh, as you can see from across the room here, uh, my hair shows it. Uh, we were just talking about where can I get a haircut, especially in these COVID times. Mm -hmm. We had to move out of base housing. So yep. one of the beautiful perks of being in the military, we had a great house, but we found another great one still living in Coronado. Thank goodness. All right. And I am flying Learjets now out of North Island for oh. a contractor that provides them for Red Air, uh, ship service and that sort of thing. Actually, I just got to do a couple Red Air flights up in the Whiskey 283, helping out the, uh, what, the Blue Diamonds one day oh, and uh, the Black Knights another day. So anyway, it's great. I'm kind of back in the saddle with the uh, the fighter stuff a little bit. All right. And, uh, well, and building some currency, which would have been good if yeah. the airline situation hadn't changed so abruptly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was but, a shock. Yeah, yeah. All right. And so when you do this Red Air, as you're saying, you're a blip on the radar, but are you also giving them some sort of training of their own? We are, yeah. So we'll do whatever presentation they look for us to do. But the big thing we bring is the EW pods, electronic warfare okay. pods. We're blasting trons out there and making a, giving those guys a hard time, you know, and when they should be seeing closure of, you know, maybe 
700 miles per hour or 800 miles per hour, they're seeing like Mach 3.5. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're doing that kind of fun stuff with yeah. them, which is a uh, good time. All right. Well, anyone who remembers our electronic attack discussion with Mini-Me can uh, probably figure out that you're doing some sort of range gate stealing and Doppler craziness there with that. So that's pretty good because that is a real threat that these guys need to train against. So they get a chance to do it with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun to do it. Excellent. All right, bud. Well, you know the drill. We have a couple quick announcements and then some listener questions if you're game. And then we'll get to our feature interview. Now, first off, last week's A1 Sky Raider episode was a big hit. We're going to put you on the spot fish. Do you get a chance to listen? Oh, you got me. Um, I did not listen to the A1 Sky Raider episode. Uh, Sorry. Well, then you missed a few goofs because number one, we had the squeaky chair that I told everybody about. But if you didn't like that, then you're not going to like our barky dog today. But that's all right. Secondly, they did, in fact, drop the kitchen sink. <laughs> we had talked about all the ordnance the A1 carries, and I said, oh, they had a toilet loaded on, and our guest was incorrect. It wasn't an Air Force aircraft. It was a Navy aircraft. But in fact, as I put it out on Instagram the other day, they loaded on a kitchen sink to a bomb one time and released that as well. So <laughs> they really had some fun with the A1 Skyraider, I think. That's good. Also, you know, it's funny. As I listened to myself, as um, George was talking about some really just serious subjects like, you know, CSAR and some of those different things. I noticed I laugh a lot and I guess normally laughing is a good thing, but not when it's serious stuff. And so I guess for me, maybe that's just a coping mechanism, but as you'll hear coming up on this episode, there's a lot of laughing here too, because frankly, uh, our guest lips is just a super funny character. And then we had a listener question about the FOD, like, Hey, okay, this is an issue for your engines. Uh, and I'm imagining it's even true for you and your Learjet now, but I think the most obvious answer that we missed was, well, it can damage or destroy your engine. So <laughs> we kind of glossed right past that and talked about the little things it can do. But yes, if a FOD can catastrophically destroy an engine. And on one of the versions, if you listen to, I think the YouTube version of the episode, you might've heard me incorrectly talk about the F-16's nose wheel being in front of the intake. And in fact, it's aft. And so we changed the episode real quick and fixed that elsewhere. But so anyway, that was that. And um, what about uh, for you guys there, just real quick, Fish, do you guys worry about FOD in your aircraft? Yeah, absolutely. It's really funny, though. Um, obviously, not as big of an emphasis on it as we had on the carrier. Mm. Carrier is one of those just dynamic environments where anything could be left anywhere. And, you know, over here on dry land where you have all the resources you need and there's a whole lot of craziness going on. So we haven't had a whole lot of talks about FOD. It's mm. kind of funny. But Is yeah. it your aircraft, are the engines up a little higher, maybe? The engines are up high, yeah. The engines are about six, seven feet off the ground. Yeah, they're about my head height. Okay. So, but so, yeah, still still higher. So it's still a concern, but maybe not as big a deal as yeah. it, if they're right down next to the ground sucking up everything. Certainly. Okay. And then our only other announcement is every once in a while, we'd like to remind you of the different things we offer on our show. You always hear me talking about Patreon. Well, this week, I just want to remind you that if you go to the fighterpilotpodcast.com and click on our shop page, you can find a really cool assortment of apparel and books and other merchandise. Uh, In fact, our designer, Mike, just released a Beastie Boys themed shirt. And uh, what we did on that fish is on the back, a lot like a concert shirt. If you ever went to Van Halen as a kid, and you bought the $50 shirt, right? It's Uh always higher. Don't worry, ours are less. Uh, But (laughs) it's got all the 2018, our first year as a show episodes. And instead of like the location, it's the topic and the date. So it's kind of cool. Nice. And uh, I haven't even ordered myself one. I need to do that. But instead of the Beastie Boys, I don't know if that's a DC-9 or whatever, we've got an F-18 and uh, it wraps around the shirt. So anyway, check it out, fighterpilotpodcast.com. There's a bunch of great books on 
all kinds of subjects, but mostly military aviation, and then some shirts and hats and other cool stuff. So check it out. I love it. I'll have to get a shirt, Jello. Oh, I'll for... have to get you one because you've been a, a good supporter of the show. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, let's do some listener questions. The first one is from Rory. Now, I'm thinking of this one in two parts here, Fish. So if you want to take both or the first, however you want to do it. But Rory asks, if someone was to eject, what is the process to start a search and rescue mission? Yeah, certainly. So this is a, um, what I'll do, Jello, is I'm going to say what I can remember of this process, and <laughs> I'll right. let you jump in and fill in all the holes, the things that I make mistakes on. Okay. For uh, There's two scenarios. You've got training and combat. In training, it's a lot simpler, obviously. And normally what happens is oftentimes if you're flying a tactical aircraft, you're not out there alone and unafraid. So if something happens, somebody knows you ejected, and they're going to start marking your location, marking the winds, that sort of thing. And they're going to start radioing back for help. And if it's out in the carrier, they're going to launch the SAR helicopter, and they're going to go out and find you and pick you up. If it's in combat, it's obviously a little bit more tricky. Because one, in combat, they're probably expecting multiple people to be shot down. You're in a hostile area. And the first thing that they need before they're going to launch any kind of SAR mission is verification that you actually got out of the aircraft. And that normally comes by way of you activating something in your radio that will then send a satellite signal to a search and rescue command back in the United States, and that activates the whole process. Mm -hmm. And then they will detail out the mission, if you will, to go rescue that person, if they even think that they can, to whatever units are available and have been assigned and are trained and ready to do that. And then there's the other scenario too, is what if you are alone and unafraid on one of those training missions? I was just thinking this has happened to one of our friends on the East Coast, Shaka Khan. He was out there, he was actually operating with a section, but he ended up G-locking, pulled so hard, he basically blacked himself out, and he came to just in time to pull the handle. Well, nobody really realized what had happened until they heard the ELT going off, which is an emergency locator transmitter. That happens as soon as you eject from an aircraft, it pulls a cord, activates that thing. Mm -hmm. So that is the other way that if you are out there alone and unafraid, kind of like Chaka was that day a signal will go out and we'll alert people that something's gone wrong and they can use that signal to find you. So that was how they found Shaka. Mm. Um, he was very fortunate. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so that's just a bit. Jello, what did I miss? And clean it all up. You know, I do remember having drills when we were shore-based for the lost aircraft. Remember? In other words, like this guy went out at yes. eight and he should have been back at nine and it's 10 and nobody knows anything. Yes. Kind of like, uh, what was that flight with that one that just disappeared and they still don't know about from uh, Australia to... China or something anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I do remember that. Yeah. Bringing this up without doing my research. But <laughs> anyway, the point simply being is that it's possible, like you said, you could have someone who's out there and maybe there's not good coverage. Let's say you fly direct from Key West to Houston mm -hmm. and you're out over that great big gulf and something happens. And so they have to then start just searching your last known location. So I think there's an element to that. And then uh, I guess if anyone else isn't sure about the combat side of things, they can again go back and listen to the A1 Sky Raider episode. We talked about that a little bit in so much as, like you said, it's usually probably where there are enemies because they're the ones who shot at you. Yep. And so when you go down, it's expected to be contested. And so there'll need to be suppression. They need to know where you are. It helps to obviously have someone who's watching like a wingman who can pinpoint your location. But as George intimated in that interview, they would sit around ready to go. And when the call came in, they scrambled and they could be airborne in minutes. And the idea was if we can get to our guy first, that's a win because the long he's there, uh, the worst, generally speaking. Yeah. That is definitely one of the things that's um, key to the whole thing is the sooner you can get to him, the better your chances of retrieving That's him. right. Yeah, so do it as fast as you can. Yep. And then I think it 
that goes without saying, and it's not necessarily Rory's question, but once there is a situation, whether it is training or combat, man, you'll take whatever you can get. If you eject in Fallon near Highway 50, you might have a truck that pulls up That's and grabs right. you. <laughs> if you're next to the carrier, the helicopter is probably going to be on top of you in maybe minutes. And it, you know, anything else, you could be sitting there for a while. Yeah. Anyway, that's a great question. Next, let's take a phone call. Hi, hello. My name is Elliot from Israel, and uh, I've got a question. Can a F-16 or a F-15 or any other land-based aircraft that has a hook, can it technically be landed by a carrier, um, uh, by a pilot who's approved to land on carriers, since it apparently has a hook and the carrier has string? And if so, is there any way to modify it at a carrier um, maintenance level to be catapulted off the carrier again? Thank you very much, and have a nice day. Bye. All right, Elliot, great question. Fish, I'm going to put this one to you because you are a landing signal officer. Can our friends in the F-16s and F-15s just see us down there in the Gulf and say, hey, I'm going to come down and land? <laughs> it's a great question. And yes, it can be deceiving. They have tail hooks, right? Right. But no, they cannot land on the carrier. Oh, well, I mean, let me correct myself. Yeah, they could once <laughs> crash land on the carrier once. That hook is not going to stop them one. It's going to get ripped right off mm-hmm. uh, the way that they land their landing gear are not going to be able to take the landing. So they might just completely pancake out when they touch down. And if they miss the hook because of the way that they're used to landing, they're probably just going to go off the side and go right into the water. So for lots of reasons, uh, they're not going to be able to land on the carrier. The biggest ones being that hook is not made to catch an arresting gear on an aircraft carrier. That hook is made to stop the aircraft if their brakes fail on a 10,000 foot runway and they're at the end of the runway and they've already slowed down to about 50 knots. Hopefully. Hopefully. They can put that hook down. And then that arresting gear down there has a lot more play out and you still have a lot more room on the runway. So they still probably still have another thousand feet Mm -hmm. for that to slow them down. So that's what those hooks are for on those aircraft. And then the other limiting factor is their landing gear. Their landing gear are made to land at like a hundred and fl- yeah, they need yeah. to flare. So mm-hmm. they need to reduce their rate of descent to at least a hundred feet per minute. They can't come slamming down at 600 feet per minute or they're going to, they're really going to break their gear <laughs> and turn right. into a pancake. Yeah. Was there a second part to that question too about can they... If you could land one, could you take it off again? And in the old days, in my A4, when I CQ'd, uh, we had bridles. Now, you still needed hooks and different things on the A4 to do that, but you could theoretically just hook up this contraption and zing it off. But these days, they're all launch bars, as you know, Yep. and the F-15 and the F-16 do not have that. And I think if you tried, if you jury-rigged something onto its nose wheel, I bet the nose wheel would go flying <laughs> I off. Bet you, yeah, I bet you'd rip the whole gear off. Yeah. Um, and you'd be left with an F-15... With- with its nose in the ground and it's yeah. in the air. Well, but that said, Fish, two things come to mind. Number one is today's episode, which we'll uh-huh. get to in a little bit. Yep. But number two is at times throughout history, the Air Force and the Navy and Marine Corps, for that matter, have all flown similar aircraft. F-4, A-4, uh, let's see, what am I forgetting? Was there F-4, A-4, A-7. A-7, yeah. Um, the Navy's even had some F-16s, but we use those for aggressor stuff. We don't actually operate on carriers. Yep. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot of commonality and a lot of uh, cross-usage of the, of the yeah. platforms. So uh, kind of put it in perspective or give it some context. I think everybody knows about the JSF and what a boondoggle that's been over the last decade, <laughs> two decades even. Yeah. The services have never collaborated before on building an aircraft. But 
one service has built an aircraft that the other service has looked at and been like, I like that and I want it. And that's what happened with the F-4. You can call the F-4 the original joint strike fighter. The Navy actually developed that. So it was built with the beefy landing gear and an arresting hook and all that stuff made to land on a carrier first. And then the Air Force said, we really like that. Yeah. And so then they acquired it and they took a whole bunch of weight off of it to make it even faster because they don't need beefy landing gear and resting hooks and mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. So anyway, yeah, you've seen a lot of that in history. Yeah. Yeah. We use the same I think, as I recall from our F4 guests, let's say it was Tiger and Fingers, they even changed the aerial refueling receptacles so oh, the Air Force right. guys yeah. could do it their way. Yep. And then as I understand, there was some aircraft, I think in the Century Series, that had both. I don't know if it was the F100 or maybe uh, we'll get to that here in 2021 when we do the Century Series. But yeah, for the most part, they took some of the F4s and gave them receptacles so they could do their boom style instead of our drogue style. Yeah. All right. Tell you what, in the interest of not going for hours today, let's go one more and then we'll get to the interview. This is an email from Bob. We've been sitting on it for a little while. And so he says, was wondering as a Hornet pilot, what sounds can you hear when in the cockpit? Canopy closed and engines running on the carrier. Can you hear the ship's loudspeaker? Mostly if you hear any mechanical clunking and banging sounds as you get hooked up, I'm guessing to the shuttle he's asking. So Fish, again, I'll go to you here. And I'm kind of thinking of, uh, who was it? Charlie Brown's teacher. Uh, and wah, wah, wah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Um, yeah, I could hear the one MC, which is the loudspeaker you'd hear on the deck of the carrier. The but it would just... The five MC. Or the five MC, yeah, sorry. Yeah. The one MC was inside the That's deck. Right. Yeah, thank you. It's been... 10 years. <laughs> okay. I'm more interested um, in the accuracy right? for the listener than... Uh, oh, sorry, no, absolutely. Than, uh, no, I, uh, Apologies. no, please correct me. Like I said, it's been 10 years. But um, yeah, you could hear that 5MC, but you just maybe hear... Uh, 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 uh. Yeah. So you knew he was talking on it. That was about it. Um, and then It was that, not for the pilots. It was not for the pilots. Right. No, that was for everybody else's to hear. Uh, if the boss wanted to yell at you, he'd do it over the radio. That's right. The clunking sound, yeah. You know what's funny is I... Think I heard the sound of the clunk going into the shuttle, but maybe it was just the feeling of going into the shuttle that yeah. makes my brain remember hearing it. I don't know. Well, there's not that much difference, right? Because those vibrations are traveling through true. the airframe of the aircraft. Yeah. And so what is sound is also feeling. In yeah. a sense. That's true. Yeah, it makes sense to me. But otherwise it was it was nice and quiet in there. Yeah. Did you used to wear foamies under your helmet? I did, yeah. Yeah. I the, did too. the foamies helped a lot. Yeah, were, no I thought they helped made me helped me hear the radios better. Yeah, because it cuts out some of the static. I yeah. don't know. That's a little, maybe not the exact right word, but yeah, I thought so too. All right, that'll do it for questions. Oh, all right, Fish, I'm really excited about this interview coming up. Now, you've had a chance to preview it before everyone else hears it. Anything we need to know now? And then, of course, we can talk about it after, but what are your thoughts going into it? Oh, man, there are a lot of gems in this interview. At first, I was thinking, here we go again. I'm going to be talking about a plane I know nothing about. Although I will throw in okay. that I now work with and live down the street from a former U2 pilot. Oh. guy that got hired at my new company. We, we hired and trained the exact same time. But listening to the episode, it was really funny because I was. it made me realize I actually have a lot of connections with this aircraft. And so real fun to uh, listen to this episode and then talk about that some more later. All right. Well, again, we have a uh, little bit of background noise with the dog there. I know you'll forgive us for that. But let's get to the interview on the YouTube with Colonel Michael Phillips. All right, listeners, in November of 2019, I received an email that said, Hey, bro, a couple friends of mine who like your podcast told me I had to be your next victim. Got great stories from the high-altitude pressure-breathing toads out there. Signed, Colonel Lips Phillips, a retired U2 driver who joins us today over the phone. How's it going, Lips? Hey, it is awesome, but yeah, <laughs> I'm only here to keep you fighter 
pukes and check. <laughs> well, it took me a year, so you weren't my next victim. But in that year, you and I have emailed back and forth. Then, of course, we had all the COVID stuff. But this is my first time talking to you a couple minutes here before we hit record. And something tells me I'm going to have my hands full. Uh, it's all meant to be fun. <laughs> totally. All right. So you signed off as retired U2 driver, and that's the point of today's discussion. But if you know the show at all, we always start with a little bit on our victims, as you say. Colonel Michael Phillips, call sign Lips, retired United States Air Force. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What'd you do in the military? I am from Africa. My old man was a bomber pilot a B-24 pilot flying out of Benghazi, Libya in World War II. And uh, he was an adventurous kind of soul. And when the war ended, the uh, government asked him to stay and work uh, for our government uh, in cahoots with the king, King Idris, and the oil fields and all the other stuff that was going on in Libya. There's only two cities in Libya, Tripoli and Benghazi. We lived in Tripoli. There was a large Air Force base there, bigger than Clark Air Force Base. It was called Wheelis, a big fighter base out in the middle of nowhere on the coast there. So growing up, uh, I was around jets and all kinds of stuff. And Sure enough, one day, a, a black jet came through there on its way to Pakistan. And I, I asked my dad, what was that jet? And uh, he told me, uh, you didn't see anything, son. And boy, <laughs> I tell you right there, that ingrained in my mind. And uh, a lifetime later, I ended up flying that airplane. So it was uh, that's where it all started. I had a great life over there. We were there when uh, Gaddafi took over. Things were okay for a couple of years. Then they started killing people. Our family had to make decisions. Mom and dad went to England. One brother went to Germany to go to college. One brother went with the folks to England to go to college. I went to America. I wanted to join the Air Force. So I picked Utah because I'd never seen snow before. And I went to the University of Utah, ROTC. Okay. Got in the Air Force and uh, did a lot of interesting things. I did 30 years in the Air Force and 30 years for American Airlines. And between the two, I had an adventure of a lifetime. And never flew a desk. How lucky is that? That's kind of rare in the, in the service today. That is amazing. And um, one of the airplanes was the U-2, and it was adventure of a lifetime. <laughs> I would say. So I don't know that much about it, so I'm really looking forward to our discussion coming up here. Cool. Yeah, I've got some great stories for you. Now, how many hours did you end up with in that? I got the Magic Thousand. And um, it's a unique situation in that you can only fly when you're deployed every four days. You know, we have physiological problems with the high altitude and stuff like that. And we only deploy for a couple months at a time. Then we have to rotate back to the mainland. So we have detachments all over the world. Pilots are deployed all over the world. So they'll, they'll know something about different theaters of the world should we have to surge in that particular portion of the world. A lot of the guys were bachelors. We were road warriors. I spent about eight months a year on the road for five years. It was an interesting lifestyle. Some places we only wore civilian clothes. You know, some bases were not American bases. It was uh, a lot of geopolitical intrigue. And uh, boy, we just thought we were James Bond, you know, but the uh, Air Force looked at us as pressure breathing prima donnas was how they addressed us. But uh, we had a blast. Oh, boy. Well, I would say so. Anytime you have a small unit mentality like that, I think everyone seems to bond together and, and make the most of it. That's pretty cool. And so when you did fly, I imagine they were longer flights. But like you said, you didn't do very many and only when you were deployed. So a thousand is kind of a milestone, huh? Yeah, it's a milestone. I would like to think that most of the people strive for it. We've got higher and we've got lower, but uh, a thousand was a nice, nice of course, pedestal to hit. 
And not to try to say a thousand is not impressive, but just for fun, who do you know that has the most hours in uh, YouTube? Uh, we got some guys that uh, not only had a lot of uh, time on station, but they then went to work for Lockheed or NASA after they retired. So we got guys that oh. basically flew it their whole life. Wow. And that's where the, the high time guys come from. Oh, wow. Okay. Right, we even have guys that work out of Palmdale and crazy jobs that YouTube might end up doing. Well, let's jump into all that, but let's start back at the beginning. As I understand, this thing was, what, initially conceived back in the early 50s, but what was the intent for what became the U2? We got to go all the way back to uh, Roswell, bro. The incident at Roswell in 47 was one of our most sophisticated, top-secret balloons that carried a microphone, and it went up to the ionosphere and tried to catch nuclear blast bouncing off the ionosphere to trace where they were coming from. So when that balloon crashed, they were grateful to the cover story about the uh, UFO and everything because they were trying to distract, 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 because uh, there was only a handful of those balloons ever made. Anyway, in the years that followed, trying to figure out what the Soviets were doing was paramount. And Kelly Johnson up at Lockheed, who was just a master of ingenuity, had had a quite a storied history even before that, starting out with the P-38 fighter, going on to the uh, P-80 shooting star, and then he was working on the F-104 starfighter. About the time he suggested to the uh, government that he could take a 104 starfighter, which looks like a needle, very sleek airplane for those who know what it is, and had very stubby wings on it. He said, I could put glider wings on that thing. I can get it up high in the atmosphere and it can fly halfway around the world. And, you know, it can get you pictures of what you want. And he did that on a napkin. I kid you not. That story is true. He drew out that design. Anyway, they built the first handful of airplanes. They considered them disposable because they were so lightweight, but they ended up keeping them, flying them. And that was the A model. And we are up to the S model after all these years. So the airplane has been flying for 60 years. You could break it up into three groups. There was a large group that flew the C model. That was a big production of the original model. Okay. Then in the mid-60s, they had the R model, which was about a third bigger than the C model. And now we are currently using the S model. S model has different engine, different cockpit, stuff like that. But uh, there were three groups of pilots that flew in all those years. Each of them have great stories. Each of them thinks their airplane was better than the other. But <laughs> of course. the reason the airplane still exists and is still used every single day is all the crap that we got on the most sophisticated spy satellites in the world can be put on a U-2. And it's the bad guys don't know when it's coming because the sophisticated bad guys know where all the satellites are. Right. They know when they're coming over. And it's the ability to sneak up on them with that same sensor strapped onto the airplane. We put them on the wings. They look like fuel pods, but they're not. They're sensor pods. Uh-huh. We stick them in the nose. The nose is 16 feet long. There's all kinds of amazing stuff there. There's a camera bay behind the cockpit. We even have antennas hanging out the bottom. We even have a dome on the top, like a little mini AWACS dome. We have so much crap we can hang on that airplane because it's got a 1,000 square feet of wing. It's got tremendous amount of lift. It's got a greater than one-to-one thrust ratio. You could stand that puppy on its tail and fly straight up and accelerate. It's just a glider with a big motor stuffed up its ass, and it doesn't even have an afterburner. It doesn't need it. And so that's why it still lives. And the handful of airplanes that we have, where we've got about three dozen left, they fly every day. Somewhere Mm -hmm. in the world, some agency of the government needs something for various uh, reasons, whether it's nefarious or not. 
and uh, the U-2s fly all the time. They're still in tremendous <laughs> demand. The Air Force is uh, considered retiring them because they like the new Global Hawk, but the Global Hawk can't carry as much crap and uh, a few other things it can't do. And so Congress keeps insisting that they need the U-2, and uh, the U-2 still lives. <laughs> Well, Lips, I, there's so much in there. I don't even know where to begin. Oh, no, and, wait, wait. Yeah, let's, <laughs> uh, let's, okay, let's start with the airplane. Uh, oh, that's good. No, all right. From a pilot's perspective, you have to go wear that pressure suit because uh, prior to the S model, the newest one, the cockpits weren't fully pressurized. So you're sitting in an unbelievably uncomfortable cabin altitude and we had to wear the spacesuits. So you got to start getting ready for a mission a couple of days prior. You've got certain sleep cycles you got to go to, certain food cycles, because you can't defecate in the suit. You can urinate, but you can't defecate. Okay. And so um, uh, let me close the door on this dog. All right. So you have flight surgeons that are assigned to you to keep you flyable because we're the weakest link in the chain of technology. So the pilots, I don't want to use the word pampered. We're just treated like laboratory rats. We got to be mm-hmm. prepared for a mission. Mission day, uh, you usually are awakened about three hours before takeoff. Some uh, missions are at night. A lot of our missions are at night, but some are in during the daytime. You're taken straight to the hospital and you get a full physical before every flight. Wow. After that physical, you go get your final meal. And a lot of it's tradition. It goes back to the days of the early Mercury astronauts. Our last meal is uh, steak and eggs and cake and coffee. And the reason is the steak has high protein, low residue, and hopefully won't go through your system during the course of a mission day. Right. We're taken over to suit up. Suit up can take about an hour. Got to get that suit on. Got to get it pressure checked. Once you're sealed inside the suit, you don't crack the seals until you're done. They prep the airplane. There might be 70 guys out there prepping wow. the airplane. Most of the guys involved with those sensors hanging on the airplane. A lot of the sensors can't be uh, operated or fixed by Air Force personnel. We have people from the companies that built them, whether it's Litton or uh, any whoever's dealing with that particular system that day. Their technicians are there <laughs> keeping the darn thing working. Mm-hmm. And so if they get the airplane already, then uh, you're breathing pure oxygen for about an hour before takeoff to try and take all the nitrogen bubbles out of your joints because hmm. sometimes we get the bends yep. just like deep sea divers get the bends going down we get the bends going up then you're driven out to the um, jet and strapped in and you start it up and you go we don't waste any time some places they actually tow it out to the runway before you start it because it can overheat on the ground if it's got a lot of sensors strapped on board you'll climb right up to altitude and uh your mission might be in orbit where you're orbiting a locale, or it might be flying over the top of a country. Uh, it just depends. And like I said, no two missions are the same. And mm-hmm. it's terribly interesting from our perspective, what we were doing. Actually in the airplane, sitting on the runway, you're looking around. We have those little training wheels hanging out there on the sides, that wing, 104 foot wing. And it's got the little red pogos or training wheels yeah. to hold it up. You've only got one brake underneath your body. Uh, you got one main wheel underneath you. You got a little tiny tail wheel in the back. So it's a tail dragger, largest tail dragger uh, ever was. Do you get a tail dragger qual on your uh, FAA certificate? <laughs> you know, I don't have, we don't have anything on the uh, FAA. Isn't that funny? There's no listing on the FAA. Anyway. But um, you'll push the power up to about 80% and check everything over. That's all that brake can hold is about 80%. Uh-huh. You look around and that's the last time you look inside because when you cob the power, she starts rolling. Those little pogos fall out. 
right away because your wings start flying at about five knots. Wow. And uh, then you're rolling down the runway. You might be airborne 300 feet. And the first thing you got to do is pull that puppy up to about 70, 80 degrees nose high to slow it down because it'll rip the wings off because it's <laughs> accelerating so quickly. And in the uh, days of old, you could pull that thing up and actually go over backwards. So they have a little yellow stripe painted on the canopy uh, to keep you from going over backwards because the ADI will tumble, the early ADIs would tumble. Mm-hmm. You pick up about 160 knots on your climb and you'll pass 10,000 feet by the end of the runway. And then you just keep on going about 40, 45,000 feet, 50,000 feet. You start to push the nose over and she'll level off. And that's when you turn the autopilot on. The autopilot servos are so small. Everything on the airplane is done to save weight. Yeah. So the servos are so small that you've got to get up high in the atmosphere before you turn the autopilot on. And once you do that, now she gets into a cruise climb mode and she's going to climb and keep on climbing as she burns off fuel. She'll go about halfway around the world on a tank of gas. And uh, wow. you can tweak the autopilot by keeping your hand on it. It has little servos, I mean, little indices, the little uh, veneer wheels, three little wheels with your fingertips. Mm-hmm. And you can control the three axes of the autopilot. And you got a little indicator that tells you the stresses on the autopilot. And you could tweak it up into what we call the uh, death zone or the, the coffin corner. Right. We can get within four knots of a uh, mock tuck where it, She'll go over front ways and the wings will come off and stalling. Well, she'll stall and the tail will come off. But it's a very stable airplane. You can change your airspeed by one knot. You get up there, you get yourself locked in that coffin corner when you're over bad guy country, and that gives you the extra altitude to keep you safe. And now you don't fly around like that all the time. You fly to your target and back with your hands off the autopilot, relax. Uh, but you got other stuff to do. You got to kind of plan your day out. Simple things like uh, taking a drink or urinating or whatever, all of them, you got to change things in the cockpit to do it. So you got to kind of plan your whole day out mm-hmm. uh, what you want to do and uh, try not to be too busy when you're over bad guy country because you got your hands full. Okay. So just on that point, a mission might last, what, several hours, eight, seven, eight hours, maybe? It can go anywhere from nine to 16 hours. I would say uh, wow. a lot of times we have multiple airplanes available. Like we've been flying U-2s over the Gulf, over the dirt. Since 1991, nonstop. That's 30 years. Wow. 30 years of coverage because there's always hot spots over there. Mm-hmm. And you might do it shifts. You might do three eight-hour shifts. Or, uh, you know, if you're flying across South America, you might have one bird and it might take 12 hours to get across the continent. And it just depends what you're doing. But uh, it just depends which detachment you're at and what job you're doing. Depends how long the mission is. Yeah. So, Lips, let's talk for those who don't have the background you and I have about the coffin corner a little bit. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take a stab at this. So, what you're saying is a fighter down at, let's say, 10,000 feet might be able to go as slow as 150 knots. And then, of course, the flaps will kind of auto deploy and your nose is all cocked up. And if you go much slower, you might stall. And I think most people are familiar with the stall. Your wings just aren't creating lift anymore and you're literally falling out of the sky. Conversely, at 700 knots, I might exceed my airframe limits and something bad could happen just because all the Bernoullis, right? All the air molecules racing by the wing, it's only built for it. So it might have a five or 600 knot gap between those two. And what you're telling me is in the U2, as you go higher and higher, that gap narrows and narrows so that as you're flying, you might have some speed. And I don't know if you want to offer one, but I'll just say, you know, some speed and then five knots above that speed is red line. So you don't want to go any faster, but a couple knots below that speed is you're going to stall. Is that basically true? That's it. And the airplane will tickle 
before she breaks. <laughs> and you got to figure out which tickle are you on? Are you, you know, mm-hmm. that's why there's no sleeping allowed on the airplane. <laughs> that's part of the reason for the long uh, mission preparation, the control yeah. sleep cycle and all that stuff like that. It's single pilot, single seat. Yep. And uh, you've got to be alert. Which end of the tickle are you on if it comes to that? Okay. And while that sounds complicated, a lot of things, at least in my experience, when people say, wow, I can't believe that you do this or that. And at first to the layman, it does seem complicated or dangerous, but for the U2 pilots, is it just one of those things you kind of shrug and like, yeah, it's really no big deal. Or is it a big deal? It's tedious. And so that's why we only do that coffin corner over bad guy country okay. where we need that extra 10,000 feet to keep us safe from fighters and missiles. Gotcha. And so you don't do it for 12 hours. You might only do it for one hour, but that one hour is very tedious while you're doing it. Got it. And then we have our little air craft series list of questions here that we sometimes ask. And we talked about the design and the fact that it's still flying. One of the questions we sometimes ask is, of all the roles, like an F-18 has all these different roles, but maybe it excels at one. For you guys, you get up, you can loiter for long periods of time. And then you, I think you said, or maybe I read it, but there's different systems that they can put on, right? So that depending on what they want to do. They can either sample the atmosphere, they can look, or they can listen. The bottom line is you guys are going out there and you're collecting. Here's an easy way to sum it up. I can take off out of Los Angeles, get above LA, get into an orbit pattern. You're in Las Vegas at uh, McCarran Airport and you step out in the parking lot. I can take a picture of you, including what's in your hands. Uh We can take the golf ball photos with the big camera. Uh, If the nighttime rolls in, I can make that infrared. If the clouds roll in, I can uh, get through the clouds and take a radar image of you. Uh, You pick up your cell phone. I can listen to what you're saying. And you obviously can't see me because I'm over the top of L.A. And that's the danger we pose to the bad guys is we'll fly along their borders. We don't even have to violate their airspace, uh, even though the rules are anything above 60,000 feet is fair play. But still, (laughs) if they could shoot you down, they will. But uh, it's our ability to do that standoff observation through the bad weather, through the daytime, through the nighttime, as well as uh, eavesdropping makes us an incredible threat to the bad guys. Oh, I would say so. Okay. Getting back to, you covered some of the variants in broad terms, and that's good. A couple I want to ask you about, at what point did it become the TR1, or was that just an anomaly for a while? Funding, just like they said in uh, the right stuff, funding. (laughs) There was a time where we had a black budget. The black budget paid for everything black in our country. And it was bottomless. Believe it or not, what finally broke the black budget was the stealth fighter, Hmm. was making that basically put us in a position where we needed to ask for more money. That's the first time we ever had to ask for more money and uh, for the other black world projects that were going on. And so since we didn't have enough budget for a strategic reconnaissance spy plane, we bought tactical reconnaissance airplanes. Same airplane, different tail number. Mm -hmm. So we purchased TR-1s and we took possession of them and then we made them strategic spy planes. It is an anomaly. Okay. And then there's an ER-2, I guess. Is that just the Earth resources or something? That's the ones that are on loan to NASA. Okay. And then you said it's a single seat. And of course, these days, like the F-35 is only single seat, but a lot of single seat aircraft in the past had adaptations for a trainer version. And I believe that's true here as well. Right. We went for about, I think it was 17 years without a trainer. Wow. And then they finally put together a couple of used airframes and made a trainer. It was successful. And so, yes, we do have a handful of trainers. We paint them white to keep everybody out of the pattern and watch out their students in progress. (laughs) 
but uh it's like the bumper sticker right student driver yeah. on board student driver. <laughs> but yeah we do have the two-seaters and uh they can fly a mission but we usually keep them around the home front for training all right and then as far as proliferation goes uh, most black projects as we say are generally just the u.s but are there others flying this there are others who have asked to fly it but we had an issue okay. early on before we made handshakes with the Chinese before they were our newfound friends. This is going back many decades. Yeah. We still wanted to know what they were doing. We didn't want to jeopardize our future relations with them. So we let the Taiwanese fly U-2s. Hmm. Well, we uh, trained them how to fly the U-2, sent them out there to go uh, take a peek at China. China didn't like that, shot some missiles at them, and the pilots bailed out. And uh, the airplanes kept going and landed in rice fields all around China. And if you go to Beijing, there's a museum in downtown Beijing that has five U-2s in it. Oh, good grief. So we stopped that program. And that was the last nation besides America that flew them, yeah. even though we've had other nations try and uh, borrow them, rent them, buy them. And right. We just won't do it. And as you said, we're still flying these things today. Any idea how long we'll be flying them yet? Every five or 10 years, they say they're going away. And here we are at 60 years. So <laughs> I, I fully expect them to fly till 20 40. Yeah. And it's only because the airframe works fine. And whatever new sensor we build, whatever new uh, spy satellite we build, we can put that gear on a U-2 in an afternoon and send it on its way. So its value to the government is that it's uh, bought and paid for. Yeah. And uh, they keep making improvements to it. This S model, they did an unbelievable upgrade to the airplane. So they obviously have intent of keeping it around for a while. Okay. So Lips, I have to ask the question that I get a lot on this show and I hate it because it's the fighter pilot podcast and I don't want the idea of losing my job to a machine, but you can take an F-16, turn it into a QF-16. They did that with QF-4s. If you're the limiting factor and have all these requirements, why not just drone this thing up, if you will? I would tell your fans when they get done listening to this to go on YouTube and punch in Bad U-2 landings. <laughs> this thing is impossible to land. That's where our bread and butter okay. is. They lost a lot of the Global Hawks trying to get them back. A Global Hawk's a wonderful machine. It's just about as big as a U-2. Carries a lot of crap. Mm -hmm. Flies autonomously by itself. But uh, you lose them. And when you lose them, it's a very expensive proposition. I just think that our ability to you know, make the on-the-spot decisions yeah. and the fact that uh, to have, it's just so much safer to have someone at the controls when you're trying to bring this thing into the land. Uh, when you come into land, you're at the mercy of the weather because you've got a big tail, big giant tail. So crosswinds is a problem for us. Okay. Those pogos are gone. Those things drop off when you take off. So now all we got is that one center wheel, right? right? So you're coming into land. Typically, you'd like to be on a long final, You'd like to be back uh, maybe one or two knots above stall speed, close to idle, and come on down, and you will cross the threshold between 6 and 10 feet. And if you don't, then you probably won't touch down at 12,000 feet of runway. So wow. if you come across the threshold in the right position, you're pretty close to stall speed. Another pilot gets in a car, usually a police interceptor or something. We've used all kinds of cars over the years. And he'll come screaming behind you and get underneath you. And then he'll back off just a few feet. And he gives you a PAR from six feet down to six inches. And the reason is you've got to get that thing down to about 18 inches off the ground. Any higher, you drop it, you'll break it. So you get down to about 18 inches. Now you've got to wait for it to stall. The reason is you've got to have the tailwheel and the main wheel touch at the same time. If not, you'll get into an uncontrollable porpoise and you'll damage the airplane. 
So all that's going on. And depending what gears on the airplane, the pilot might not be able to see what's going on in front of him. Because remember, that nose is 16 feet long. Mm -hmm. And so everything depends on the landing. And so if you get into that uh, uncontrollable PIO or if you lose drift on the runway because the crosswinds are so bad, you can damage the airplane and make a pedestal out of it. And so all of our money is in the landing. Gotcha. So the uh, pilot that's in that chase car, is that just any old pilot or are they qualified like a landing? It's an interesting job. We're trained in both the car and the airplane. So that's our dual job. And everybody has that qual or just a select few? Yeah, everybody has that qual. And, you know, you got to be checked out, but it's a lot of fun. I mean, over the years, over its lifetime, I think we've drawn uh, Camaros, El Caminos, <laughs> uh, you know, and sometimes overseas we have to rent cars and that gets kind of fun yeah. too. Uh, but anyway, uh, driving the car is a hoot. It really is. There's a story. We have to come in from the approach to the runway in the car. So you might be going 90, 100 miles an hour and skidding around getting behind the airplanes that comes across the threshold. And our cars had Goodyear radials on them. We were burning through tires in 4,000 miles. And somebody from the GAO came to the Air Force Base and said, what are you hot dogs doing? You're burning up the most expensive tires we have on vehicles right now. And uh, we took them for a ride, and they never asked us a question again. We never heard from them. Yeah, I don't doubt it. So when you're coming across the fence and the threshold, how fast are you going when you come across over the fence? In the pattern, by the time we get over the runway, maybe 90 knots. All right, so the car has to accelerate aggressively to catch up, but then he's talking you down. He's got to get underneath us and get as close as he can, and he is laser-focused on that main wheel. And then as he's watching as the tail wheel comes down to join the main wheel in height, and he's also watching your drift left and right. Gotcha. And like I said, if you go look at that YouTube video, you'll see what happens. If any parameters off, left, right, tail, main, and those things will go right off the runway. You'll, oh, wow. you'll ground loop one of those airplanes on a heart loop. So how much runway do you need? Is a, What's a minimum? I don't know, because we operate off such big runways just for this reason. Mm-hmm. Over the years, believe it or not, we've had a, a drag chute that you could pop to slow things down. We've got tail hooks on some of our airplanes. I'm used to operating off these SAC runways because uh, SAC owned the U2s for a long time. Yeah. So usually it's long runways, yeah. but I, I couldn't tell you the no, exact number. But if you don't do it right, you're just going to go in ground effect all the way down the runway and you won't land. And when you do get down to almost stopping, does one wing just go down at that point and then you're kind of done? If you're a good enough pilot and there's a breeze, you can stand there and hold that airplane level. And you can actually wait for the guys to come over to put the pogo in, and you can raise that wing so they get in there and put the pogo in. <laughs> but you okay. can't lay it down. If you were in a heavy crosswind and you can't keep that thing on center line, you've got full rudder in, and she won't touch down. If you're in a geopolitical situation where you can't land in a different location, you can actually put that wing on the ground. It's got titanium skid pads on the end of it, and the shower sparks coming off that wing will hold your fuselage over the center line while you can stall the upwing and drop it down. My goodness. So it, it gets kind of uh, interesting, to say the least. Yeah, I would say, Lips. So based on all that, how did someone come up with the, I can't think of a great adjective here, I wish I was better at it, but how did someone come up with a crazy idea of trying to land one of these on a carrier? The idea was we could give the Navy a fleet protection airplane up above, like a giant AWACS. Also, it was potential of emergency recovery for the U-2. So in other words, back in the day, there were times we would uh, flame these engines out, and you got to look pretty high glide ratio, and you can go a long ways. And we try and plan the mission so that you could get to some kind of hard surface. But in some situations, you're not, and the thought was, well, we can use the carrier out there. Well, it works because... 
You can, once again, you slow the airplane down effectively to 90 knots. Let's say the ship is steaming uh, 20, 25 knots, and you're steaming into a headwind. So you can come across the threshold in a carrier 30 knots <laughs> and literally wow. touch down like an elevator, and they just come out and grab the wings. <laughs> and they hold the wings, and when you're ready to go, you just goose the power, and they let go of the wings. We don't use a catapult. Now, the problem for the Navy is we need a clear deck. Yeah. Because we only got like three or four feet clearance on the tower. So the Navy didn't buy off that idea. But there are a couple pictures of U-2s with the U.S. Navy on them. And obviously, there's some video that you can see on YouTube of carrier operations we did off the uh, USS uh, America. And um, prove the concept. The wings actually will fold at a certain location to fit on the on the elevator oh, wow. and everything, but we never pursued it. Well, they've had C-130s and U-2s on carriers. So I think, you know, someone had to try it out and see, but that just sounds crazy. How is it to fly otherwise? You talked about the takeoff, you talked about the landing, you talked a little bit about tweaking the wheels, but when you do get to hand fly it, is it difficult? Is it a joy? Uh, what's it like? Part of the physical is an upper body strength test. There's no hydraulics. Okay, It's all rudder and cable. It's got a P-38 steering wheel in it. And you yanking and banking, there's a hydraulic actuator in the tail for the trim, but everything else is rudder and cable. And yes, you've got your handfuls. You do a pattern sortie, do a handful of touch and goes, and you're drenched in sweat. Wow. It's a hard airplane to, to fly. That's where the name Dragon Lady comes from, okay. landing the damn thing. Yeah, it's a handful, no doubt. It's unlike anything else I ever flew in the Air Force. I should probably know this, but I don't. Is it a pilot thing to call it the Dragon Lady, or is that the actual nomenclature? You know how you have the F-16 fighting Falcon that's the Viper and all these other, you know. They don't like to elaborate on things, but I do believe there's a vicious uh, story about a, a whorehouse in the uh, Far East named the Dragon Lady where <laughs> the pilots might have got lost in one day. But uh, Dragon Lady, uh, we call it the Deuce. I suppose most of the pilots call it the Deuce. We say we're Deuce drivers. Okay. But uh, Dragon Lady seems to, I don't think it's an official moniker for the Air Force, but that's what it's known as. I can't find anywhere the official. Do you know? Like, again, the A-10 is the Thunderbolt 2. Yeah, there is just nothing official. Everything's unofficial. We, okay. and we don't write anything down. You know, everything's nefarious. As we say in the business, keep up the mystique. Okay. And that's our job. Keep up the mystique. So, Lips, got to ask you this one, because, again, it's on our aircraft series list, but I know the answer. Armament. Probably nothing on the airplane. Did you ever carry anything as, like, a sidearm or anything? Yes. Depending where we were, what we were doing, sometimes there were issued firearms. And I know sometimes when I was flying, I carried my own firearm. There were places that we knew that they weren't going to be able to come get us. Yeah. And so where we had to get our own way out of that country or get our own way into a safe area. Um, I don't know what currently is in the seat kit. I wouldn't be surprised if there's something in there. Different pilots did different things. Well, in the old days, as I read, this aircraft didn't even have an ejection seat, but I guess it does now, correct? Yeah. When we got it from the Starfighters, the F-10 Starfighters, their ejection seat was downward because they were going so fast, they were afraid they were going to hit the tail. So the ejection seat went out the bottom of the aircraft. Uh, We changed it to out the top, but we've had successful and tragically unsuccessful ejections in the altitude. During the course of my time in the program, I had five friends die. You know, we just don't talk about it. It's just what it is. And, you know, some were lost to accidents, some were lost for other reasons, but uh, yeah. uh, most of them, unfortunately, died a cold, lonely death somewhere in the world. Mm. So just the nature of the business. Well, not a good part of it, but a necessary part. All right. So I don't know if you know your friend there, Brian Shaw for the SR-71. I, I asked him this next question, and he actually got offended, uh, but it was funny. Uh, strengths and weaknesses. So as you look at the U-2, and I've tried to refine this since asking Brian, because he said, how dare you? It was really funny. Long story short, based on what this aircraft 
does and was designed to do. What would you say is its greatest strength? And then was there ever anything that just, you know, hey, guys, a few more dollars and we can fix this, right? So uh, what did you like and what did you hate? Okay, the greatest weakness is you bring up Brian Scholl. He's one of my very good friends, and uh, <laughs> I could tell you stories that would make your hair curl, but uh, uh, Brian and I were always on each other about the two airplanes because we flew T-38s together. We both had family and friends in Florida, okay. and anytime we could get our hands on a 38, we'd go down together. He even came up and gave my kid his eagle when he got Eagle Scout. Oh, all right. So Brian is a great friend of mine, and I love him to death, but uh, yeah, he's a wussy. Anyway, <laughs> our weaknesses in the U-2 is the airplane too fragile. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Aircore Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Aircore Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Aircore Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. We can't take any G-load. Okay. We have something called a gust load. If we get into heavy turbulence, the flap goes three quarters of the wing out, and then the aileron takes the last quarter. Okay. So the entire aft end of the wing will move. We can hit a gust up switch. In essence, it's a flaps up, up. The flaps actually go up instead of going down, and the aileron follows them up. So now the aft end of the wing is up, and the aileron still works in the up position, and that kills about 50% of the lift on the wing to try and save it from coming apart uh, in turbulence. We've lost some of our airplanes that come apart in heavy turbulence. Wow. So it's a lightweight airplane. If, if you took the wing off, four of us could pick that wing up. That's how light it is, hmm. even though it's 100 feet long. You know, it's amazing how lightweight the airplane is. But because they're always trying to save weight, interesting story, one's a fun story. Interesting story, we have no fuel gauge. It's a wet wing. The whole wing is wet. It's got fuel bladders out there and whatnot, mm -hmm. but it would weigh too much to put a fuel measuring system out there. So we have a little tiny meter that tells us how much fuel has been metered in. And then we got these big charts and you actually are graphing your fuel and you hope that the too short line doesn't cross. Uh, you know, <laughs> so the biggest drama was getting to the halfway point and knowing you had enough fuel to complete the mission because we have no weather ships. We don't know what the jet stream is going to be doing up there because oh, uh, it could be 200 knots when you could be descending over the Yellow Sea to land in Korea, and you fly backwards. You point the airplane towards China, and as you descend, the jet stream's blowing you backwards. We had a periscope looks out the bottom of the airplane, and we can see Korea underneath us, and we just plan our descent going backwards, because if you just pointed it at Korea, you'd be blown out over the uh, yeah. Pacific Ocean. Oh, so my. The fun thing is everything was critical, everything space-wise. And we had a new... Uh, INS, and the guys that built it, I want to say Litton, I can't remember who did it. They were so proud they'd shrunk the control head to take up less space in the cockpit. They never put a space glove on and tried to punch the buttons. The buttons were flush. We couldn't punch the buttons on this control head. So we had to have a pencil 
and use the eraser to punch the uh, INS in. So we ended up with the, the Johnny Carson pencils. He used to tap a pencil on his desk and had an eraser on both ends. And so we had little Johnny Carson pencils, and we had a little container with about a dozen of them, because if you drop it, you can't reach over and pick it up. You can't bend over and space it. And that, we had to program that INS with the uh, pencils. So the first time I got in the airplane, I saw those pencils, and I'm, what the hell is this for, you know? They never tell you anything, you know, what something's for. Like, I got in the airplane, and hanging over my shoulder was a string with a beer opener. Remember the old beer opener can? Sure. That's hanging in the airplane behind me, and I'm what's that for? And you're looking at it and you're trying to figure it out. The circuit breakers were over your shoulder and you couldn't reach around and pull them with your gloves. So you would take the rear view mirror and shine back at the circuit breaker and use that can opener to pop the circuit breaker. So, <laughs> and got in once, there was a three-foot stick stuffed along the side of the uh, dashboard. And I'm going, what the hell is that for? You know, They never tell you. They always want the fun of you finding out the hard way what it's for. Uh-huh. The airplanes would freeze over inside because you're heated inside the suit. The cockpit wasn't heated back in the older models. And so the coming down through the descent, which could take an hour, two hours to get down, uh, your cockpit would freeze over. And you take that stick and scrape a little hole in the very front windshield to see where you were going. <laughs> interesting little tidbits. About that. Wow. Well, speaking of that, again, realizing that there's only certain things you'll be allowed to say, but as far as the mission goes, was it something where you had a lot of information and were actively involved or was it just go to this point at this altitude and this heading and don't worry about what's happening out in your pods and behind you in the fuselage? Well, and once again, everybody's got a story and we would get an intelligence brief the day prior to a mission. Okay. It included not only in theory where you were going, what you were doing, but also where to go if things went bad. So one day uh, I walked into the briefing room and there was George Bush and Oliver North. No introductions. We just sat down. They were showing me a map where they wanted me to take some photos and whatnot. I'm looking at the map. It's Nicaragua. I can see where we're going, but no one says anything. They just tell us where they need the photos taken and everything. And, and that was it. I never saw them again. And a couple of years later during the Iran-Contra hearings, Oliver North had a photo of the Sandinista infiltration trails in Nicaragua. And I looked at the bottom of the photo and I saw the date. I said, hey, I took those pictures. <laughs> anyway, a year later, I get my OPR, my performance rating for promotion. Right. And on the back, written in pencil, this pilot is a good officer, George Bush. Wow. Now, how did that guy think to remember me, you know, months later? And uh, put that on my uh, performance report. Think about that. He was a leader. That's why. Yeah, pretty well. So, yeah. So, uh, sometimes uh, the less you know, the less uh, threat you are if something goes bad. (laughs) Perhaps. All right. So, notoriety. This aircraft's been around, like you said, coming on 60 years. It's flown somewhere around the world all the time. It's been everywhere. Uh, What other notoriety is there? And I'm thinking of one particular incident over the Soviet Union. Believe it or not, people always ask. I met his family because it's a small community. You can still fit all of us mm-hmm. in, in a room. We can all tell tall tales together. But uh, because we still fly the airplane, we can't go into details about how that happened. Okay. There's a reason why it happened. And when we stop flying the airplane, well, you might be able to hear, tell you that. So it's, a, it's an unbelievable story. The last thing you do uh, towards the end of the training cycle is you go into the vault and they pull out the big book, <laughs> the big black book. Mm-hmm. And what that has is all the incidences, all the losses and stuff like that. And you just get a chance to review it just to hopefully give you some insight, what has gone wrong, what you might do different if it, you find yourself in that situation. And then once again, you sign the non-disclosure agreements that you'll never speak of it. There you go. 
All right, Lips, this has been really interesting. So we have a support system called Patreon where folks can financially support the show. And in doing so, they get certain perks and privileges. And one of those is that I tell them when I have an interview coming up and they can give me questions to ask to you. And I didn't give you these questions in advance, but I'm pretty sure you can. Oh, my God. Now we're well, well, so it's a lightning round here, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can handle all these. And I want to pose a couple to you. So Bill starts with what function does the U2 have on the modern? battlefield and i think we've talked about that because with all the different sensors you're gathering and collecting and all that i guess what i would add to bill's question is do we still have to wait till the pilot lands like in the old days or can we feed that real time real time feed okay and basically anything that's needed that you two can do on the modern battlefield is that basically in theory yes and some magic fair enough uh let's see we had a question about why use a u2 over a satellite but i think we've talked about that one what upgrades have been implemented throughout its long service life brandon asked i think we talked about the different aircraft as far as the airframes go but i have to think all the stuff stuffed into it is uh always being upgraded huh it's always being upgraded. Like I said, the major ones we talked about and the current airplane, even though it looks the same on the outside, it's really pretty different than even the airplane I flew. Yeah. I mean, when I first got in the program, I think it was a year before I saw all the airplanes in the fleet because okay. they're always deployed and you're deployed. So to cross paths, because some of the airplanes had different checklists. They're totally different the, huh. than the other airplanes that you fly. So each time you get in one initially, it's like a new experience. That makes sense. All right. Jared says several times throughout the history of the U-2, the government has tried to cancel the program. I think you mentioned that. Yet it's still going on today. Why is it so irreplaceable? And before you answer, Jimmy has a question related to that. I've always wondered why the U-2 a significantly older aircraft is still operational and the SR-71 is not. So I have to put this one in there for you since you talked about Brian. What is the thinking behind that, says Jimmy? So, Well, you two uh, think of it as a, uh, it's like a space shuttle. It's a bus. It can carry lots of crap. Mm -hmm. And it's that ability to carry lots of sensors and take it a long distance makes it a utility aircraft, which is hence where the actual U-2 came from. It's a utility aircraft. The SR-71 was uh, more of an enhanced aircraft, and its value was uh, to get there and get there fast. And in a nuclear war, when the satellites are gone, the SR-71 was the only thing that was going to get that information to the president in a timely fashion. It just got too expensive to fly. It's a very expensive airplane yeah. to fly. And uh, the U-2 is a little more cost-effective, and it's also that ability to strap so much crap on. There was only so much stuff you could put inside an SR-71 because of the design of the fuselage. But the U-2 being that workhorse, you can, like I said, we have stuff on top of the airplane, on bottom of the airplane, and in the airplane, and they just keep hanging crap on there. It's got such a high lift uh, ratio that it can just, just keep loading that bad boy up. Speaking of that, how come some of them have that little canoe, I don't know what better to call it, up on the top of the fuselage and some don't? Every airplane starts out the same. All that stuff can be put on and, and taken off. Okay. And so it just depends what it's being used for and what part of the world, uh, what sensors are strapped on the airplane. And speaking of that, in history at least, and I don't, again, I don't know what we can talk about today, but I read that there were different, I don't know, organizations flying it to theoretically go sniff the air and learn about weather and different things. But some have asserted that that was just different covers for the CIA doing different missions. But are there other things that the, U2 does as far as other than military activities? There are unbelievable requests that we get from different agencies of the government, and they literally rack and stack them. And based on the, some missions, presidential input, 
what we're going to do that day is what the airplane might do. So, yes, we work for all agencies of the government. And I did some really weird crap when I was there. But like I said, it made it fun. Yeah. It made it fun because you never knew what you were going to do. And uh, I've seen the four corners of the world. And some missions are boring and some missions are exciting. And it just depends. Yeah. And uh, that was one of the reasons I enjoyed the airplane so much. It just You just never knew what was coming your way. Is that what you flew mainly? You talked about the T-38, but was there... No, I, I've been very, very, very lucky. Uh, started out in training command. Uh, everybody, uh, that's the worst thing you do is the plowback, in essence, you know, got plowed back there and uh, snaked my way into an exchange tour with the Navy. I flew with you guys out of Kingsville, oh. uh, VT-23 with a guy named Charlie Brown, who was commander, uh, off the of Lexington. That was a blast. Learned how you guys do everything wrong. <laughs> then uh, got into the U-2, and they want you to stay there. Yeah. Once you get checked out, whether it's the SR or the U-2, I wanted to fly the SR. And I was hoping to get a chance to get an interview. There's no guarantees about anything, but I was biding my time. Others before me had done that, moved from one airplane to the other. And I was hoping to get an interview, and uh, they closed down the training program. And we all knew the writing was on the wall, that, wow, this is bad. <laughs> They're really going to park it this time. You know I mean, we had a meeting at the squadron, and uh, we all decided what our future was going to be. And there's no pyramid, you know, but only one squadron. There ain't much room at the top for everybody. Right. So that's when I left and went to American Airlines. A bunch of us did. And that happened right before the Gulf War started. Gulf War started. And I felt so bad. I called the Air Force and said, I'm ready to come back. And they said, every single one of you guys call. <laughs> and we appreciate it. We still need you right now. I said, look, I'll do anything. And they said, really? Will you fly a tanker? I said, yeah, I'll fly a tanker. Well, that turned out to be a blast. I ended up flying tankers in March for a while and uh, then uh, got on to uh, Air Force Two. Um, when they first bought the 757s, they had four of them. And I was a high time 75 guy with American. And I volunteered to go out to uh, Andrews and fly that for a while. That was interesting, except sure. I flew the Clintons. That left a little bit desired. I mean, Hillary was a rough lady, cussed like a sailor, but Bill was a charming <laughs> Southern gentleman. So you got both yeah. extremes. But it was interesting. Did that for a while. And uh, then finished up, uh, retired from the Air Force, uh, I think, in '09 uh, or something, and retired from the airlines in 19. So oh, wow. I had a great career. I just had a wonderful experience and uh, never had an assignment I didn't enjoy. And I consider myself very, very, very lucky to be able to say that. Oh, yeah. But uh, I had just as much fun flying a crew airplane as I did flying single seat. Or Everybody always has an opinion that one's better than the other. I had a blast doing both. Oh, I agree. I can't compare to what you just had experience-wise, but I flew mostly single-seat F-18s, and then towards the end, had a chance to fly the Super Hornet with the uh, Wizzos, and I agree. There was definitely value in having people along on some of those, so still have some questions. Pilot selection, is there anything special they look for with the U-2 guys? Yeah, it, it changes over the years, but when I was a young pup with that dream that I had from Africa flying the airplane... I knew the process to apply, so I had to get so many hours to even meet the threshold. And as soon as I got that threshold, I applied, and literally, like in the movie, two guys in black suits showed up, <laughs> I swear to God. And they asked you, why did you send that letter in? And you're trying to find an answer. What you don't realize, there are two you 2 guys. They sent them down on a 38 to go check you out. <laughs> and so... They uh, show up in business suits, and uh, I said, hey, I just I, I think the airplane's amazing. I want to try it and everything like that. And then they disappear. And then all of a sudden, you get orders to show up at uh, Travis Air Force Base Medical. Mm -hmm. And you got a uh, space physical to go through. And it's called Bet Your Wings because they could find something in that physical 
that they might not find in 20 years of military physicals and you could lose your wings truly oh yeah i mean they're doing brain scans they're doing they're looking for epileptic tendencies they're looking for all kinds of crap and then you got to go through a shrink to you know they're always afraid what are you going to do by yourself out there in bad guy country so got to go through the shrink and then you go up to beal and they say okay now we get to go fly the airplane you've never seen the airplane before <laughs> and you got to go fly it <laughs> you get three pattern sorties and you got to show some kind of tendency to to learn how to land it you get through that and then you go back in the squadron and what you don't realize is the interview is not over everybody's eyeballing you because once you're in the unit there's only a handful of officers and you might be deployed somewhere there might only be four of you and so you got to fit in with a group and what they're doing is they're doing the secret thumbs up thumbs down ballot whether to let you in or not and so then they send you back where you came from they don't tell you anything and then a couple weeks later, another set of orders shows up and you disappear. You go join the black world. Hmm. So the interview process was interesting. Back in the day, I think the uh, U-2 was taking in about maybe eight to ten pilots a year. And the SR was taking in about uh, two to four. It's tough to get in. And once you're in, they, they want you to stay. Well, I can imagine that's a big investment for them. So, all right. Well, you've been a good sport. I just have a couple more questions and we'll let you uh, get back to your dog there. But uh, Victor wants to know if the car chase is a hard requirement for landing, but what happens if you go to a divert, but are there maybe always cars available at the diverts or how do you handle that? It just depends. You just got to make do, you know, you just got to adapt and overcome. Okay. Uh, the, I think the funnest time ever had, I think it was on a small Island in the Mediterranean and we had a rental car. It was a stick shift and the radio literally was like an old green radio out of a Jeep. And they just, so you're holding on the radio with one hand, you're trying to shift gears <laughs> and drive this little Fiat or whatever it was screaming uh -huh. down the runway by laughing my butt off. We had an incident where a guy, during the winter time, trying to get a head start on things. And he backed up into the uh, overrun all the way to the edge of the overrun, waiting for the airplane to come out of the overcast. He never took it out of reverse. He <laughs> stomped on that rudder and just went into a bingo ditch backwards. And the YouTube saw his flashing red lights. Then he saw his headlights pointing straight up as he went over the top of them and landed. Of course, he survived it. <laughs> Just uh, crazy, oh, crazy yeah. stuff, you know. Victor also wants to know, does the black color of the aircraft serve any purpose? And if you don't mind, I'll take a stab at that because I remember Brian talking about it. It actually helps. Brian the Wussy, that Brian? <laughs> but that helps the visibility in the daytime, as I understand, because of where you're flying. Well, you know, once again, uh, keeping up the mystique, and you never know, I've seen white U2s. I've seen silver U2s. I've seen blue U2s. I've seen camouflage U2s and the black ones. Okay. Now, at altitude, uh, I saw an SR go by once. Oh, I was over in the uh, Far East. It looked white. And I landed and I asked everybody, do we have white SR-71s? I'm telling you, I saw it. It was white. And it's just the oh. optics at altitude. Even though it's painted black, it looked white to me. But um, there's some utility involved in the color schemes. Also, there are certain countries that we deal with that don't want sinister black airplanes flying over them. So to... Uh, acknowledge their concerns, we'll send a silver one or a white one because we need their permission to be there uh, with certain friendly nations. Yeah. You know, I don't have the official answer for you. I just know I've seen a lot of weird stuff in my time in the program. All right. So William's question is maybe a little sensitive. He wants to know, without going into anything classified, of course, uh, what is the survivability of the U-2 in the modern battle space? And just to jump on that, two thoughts. First off, number one, I think if I remember correctly, Gary Powers was downed by uh, an SA-2, I think. Uh, you, maybe you can tell me. But these days, there are some pretty impressive SAMs. So I wonder how you feel about those, but also what you can tell me about, is it just look out the window and that your eyes are what you get, or do you have something on board that helps you? 
once again, can't discuss okay. powers, even though that incident was 50 years ago. Still can't discuss exactly what happened. I do have a humor story for you. Being up there on that pedestal, anything that's coming up to get us creates a tremendous heat signature, whether it's a fighter and afterburner, whether it's a Mach 6 missile coming up. And so it's easy for us to detect that heat source that's coming at us. And we got some time to get our crap together, what we want to do. The problem is for both the fighters and the missiles, mm-hmm. they can't turn up an altitude. We can still do a steep bank turn because you've got a thousand square feet of wing. They don't. Mm-hmm. So most of the jets actually pop up and they get above 55, 60,000 feet. They're just doing a pop up. They can't level off and fly. So we know they're coming. We see the direction they're coming from. We certainly can see a contrail if we don't see a an actual airplane, uh, a little bit of trivia. There's a rear view mirror sticking off the top of the U-2. People ask, what's that for? It's only to check the contrails at your region of the world during takeoff. Uh. So I take off over in the Far East, and today the contrails are forty-five to 50,000 feet or 55,000 feet. So I know if something comes through that and make contrail, it helps me find out target who's coming and whatnot. Anyway, the reason for that is a lot of times we'll let them get in close and then we either turn into them or turn away from them, depending what they're going to try and fire at us. Because if they fire a missile at us or whatever, the missile can't turn. And if you turn into it, it thinks it's just going to try and get a tail chase with you. And it spins out of control because unless it has a ring of thrusters around the nose cone, right. it can't turn. Just like the early X-15 had that ring of nose thrusters, that's the only reason you could turn up an altitude. And so anyway, we're surprisingly safe because nothing can sneak mm-hmm. up on us now. There are missiles that can get above us and come down. Those are the scary ones. And when I was a new pup, I was on my first operational sortie. The SR that day was on its way to Kadena, and they knew they had a new U-2 guy out there. So they decided to play with me, and they flew right over the top of me. And all my sensors went off at once because, once again, everything's usually pointed down. And I literally thought one of those new missiles that got up above me, I almost crapped my pants. And they went over the top of me and dumped some fuel on me and kept going, and that was my welcome to the program. But uh, uh, surprisingly so, we can keep out of trouble because we know what's coming, and we certainly can draw threat rings mm-hmm. and operate in between threat rings and whatnot. It takes tremendous sophistication from a nation to shoot down one of our airplanes. Okay. Doesn't mean they can't do it, but it takes a lot of sophistication because the ability not to sneak up on us so we can get out of trouble before they get there. All right, just a couple more, we'll be done. Sebastian wants to know if you've ever heard a story about some French Mirage 3s apparently intercepting a U-2 over France? I um, had the luxury of telling the French (laughs) you on the radio when they wouldn't let us overfly France for the Libya raid. Do you remember that? I do. And some French came up to say hello. And uh, normally we uh, keep cordial relations with their nation, but I just let them know a thank you for not letting us, for making our F-111 crews fly an extra five hours to go around your nation. But anyway, uh, I've seen in my lifetime, I've seen MiGs, I've seen British Lightnings, I've seen uh, Iranian F-14s, I've seen all kinds of stuff up there, but most of them are doing that parabolic arc and just coming up and going back down. One of our guys turned into a MiG-29 and the MiG-29 tried to follow him and he stalled, promptly stalled. Couldn't get a real light and he crashed. And our guy landed and he wanted to confirm kill. He goes, I killed him. He's dead. And they wouldn't give it to him because they said you were never there. Man. And uh, he was like, hey, come on. I killed him. But um, uh, the only airplane that could come up there and level off and give us chase was the big, yeah. the Foxbat, MiG-25. 
problem was you, once he gets up there and levels off and gives chase, uh, usually you can, you're far enough away he can't catch you, and when he lands, they have to replace his engines. So um, that was the only airplane that could do that. All right, two more. Jim Gundog says, uh, does the Ninth Reconnaissance Wing award broken bottom awards for every so many missions like air medals? Because he says, uh, you know, 10, 12, I think you said 16-hour missions must require a very soft, sturdy, and wide hemorrhoid donut. <laughs> God bless you, folks, he says. <laughs> I will tell you, we have two cherished awards within the ninth. One is the uh, Silent Birdman. That's if you flame out and get the airplane back, you get the Silent Birdman Award. All right. Or if you cut your mission short because you crap your pants. <laughs> we cannot sit in our feces for 12 hours because we'll get infections, tremendous infections. So it's an abort. If you crap your pants for a reason, you got to come back. Now, Washington knows you're coming back. Everybody in the country knows you're coming back. And why you're coming back. We want you to suffer. When you land, all you want to do is get out of that suit and go to the shower. We don't. No, 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 no. We're going to tow the airplane in the hangar and have a Stratter Shitter Award. And they make a big production out of it. You're standing there stinking like you know, uh, a hog and you just want to get out. And we make you suffer mightily. Yeah, so we've got a plaque in our bar. And you've got members of the Silent Berman Club and members of the Stratter Shitter Club. And I knock on wood. I never joined the Stratosphere Club. <laughs> well, speaking of that, if you don't do that, you talked about the lead-in. What about the when you land? Is there a big tail end of the mission, or is it pretty quick? Well, what happens is you uh, land. We want to get these airplanes out of sight as quick as possible because we know right. where their satellites are. And we you know, try as much as we can to keep our uh, location of our airplane secrets. They'll tow you right in the hangar, and uh, you'll get out strip off your suit and you go to debrief and the debrief is from the maintenance guys and the systems guys. They want to know how things work. And I remember sitting in a briefing once over in Korea and I said, well, I had a little bit of problem with the autopilot. She was doing a little bit of divergence at an altitude and this guy in the back room said, yeah, she did that in Vietnam. In other words, he was one of the guys who had been with the program for 30 years wow. as one of these technicians, and he remembered that <laughs> airplane. And I'm like, my, I'm, yeah. my mind's blown. You know what I mean? Yeah. That we have the lowest change out time intervals for parts. In other words, nothing's allowed to fail in that airplane. They'll swap parts out at any cost because you're out there by yourself right. and you're a long way from help. So the airplanes were incredibly reliable. Uh, my only uh, incident, uh, which was uh, both an adventure and a, a handful, was I was delivering one of those two-seat airplanes from California to England. It was going to go over the North Pole. And I'm young. I'm going, this sounds like fun. It's a nighttime mission. This is going to be a gas, you know. You get to see all the northern lights and stuff. Well, about three hours into my, uh, I think it was 11-hour mission, I had a nose fire. One of my panels burned up in the nose, electrical uh, short, and it took everything, autopilot, uh, all my instruments. All I had was uh, airspeed uh, and um, magnetic compass. But the airplane was flying fine. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to fall out of the sky I'm not going to get lost. I'm going to be able to see Greenland, you know, and stuff like that. I'll, I'll see what I'm, well, I kept going, man. And we're not talking mm -hmm. to anybody. We're, you know, you're up there on your own. It was fun. The only problem was there's no autopilot. So I had to hand fly it. Yeah. And that's really tedious, but uh, again, I'm, I'm having an adventure. This is a once in a lifetime thing, uh, but I couldn't urinate, couldn't take time to get to eat or drink mm -hmm. because you can't let go of the controls. I got my hands on the controls and my luck, there's a winter whiteout over Northern Canada and Greenland. So I didn't see anything. So what I started doing, because I knew the mad compass was going to go away eventually, I was just picking out a star. Like every 10 minutes, I'd pick out a star and I'd fly to it. And I figured, you know, at least in 10-minute intervals, I could keep a marginally straight line because eventually the mad compass went tits up. 
Anyway, the first thing I saw was Iceland. I was within 60 miles of my ground track. I was pretty proud. Eight hours of hand flying that thing. I got to England, and England was furious because I didn't check in properly with the position report. <laughs> I, I didn't know where I was, but they were furious about, you know, Sandwick was, was were not happy yeah. with me. Because once again, when you get below 60,000, you got to check back in with society. Mm-hmm. And they weren't happy when I went. But anyway, the Air Force was happy. They got, they got the airplane. They started calling me Magellan <laughs> after that, you know, but it was a lot, a lot of fun. All right. Last question. You already touched on it. How do you drink and snack and relieve yourself up there? So let's start with the output. Are you wearing something and you just go? Because I, I can't imagine. They tried different things, but what they ended up with was this condom within a condom. You're wearing cotton underwear, full length, head to toe, gloves, booties, and your underwear has a circle uh, where your penis hangs out. And it's got a little Velcro ring around that circle. And this rubber uh, attachment looks like a condom, but the outer part is a little sturdier. And then the softer part's inside, and the softer part has its tip cut off. So you can push your penis inside that device called urine collection device, UCD, push it inside that UCD, and get a tight fit around the shaft of your penis inside that outer shell with a softer inner shell. And then that outer shell has two adapters. One is a tube that hooks on the top of it for airflow, and one is a tube that hooks on the front of it that goes through the your underwear down to your kneecap, and on your kneecap is a valve assembly where it exits the suit, and then it goes into a collection port on the floor. So when it's time to go to the bathroom, you change the pressure of the suit and create airflow through that condom, uh, and you urinate, and it sucks the urine down that tube into that container port. Now, the problem is as that tube travels along your leg, your inner thigh, it feels like you're urinating, you're pissing on yourself. And guys pinch it off because they know if you have a malfunction and you urinate inside the suit, that's an abort item also because, once again, you've only got hot air heating the inside of that suit. And they can't heat that urine that you're sitting in. You can get hypothermia uh, where you contact the urine. So it's an abort thing. So anyway, feeling that thing like it's pinching off, a lot of guys – have a hard time urinating. So they actually will put you in the altitude chamber in a suit, pump you full of Gatorade and leave you in there till you learn how to sit. Cause <laughs> yeah. you got a pee sitting down and you, you laugh now, but I'm telling you, it's very hard to do it. Yeah. Once you got it, you got it. But initially you're so afraid of it leaking and it feels like it's leaking until you get the comfort of it seeing in that tube coming out your kneecap. It's a problem. Now we have young ladies in the program. So that, that brought on a whole new ball game. And they had to do some experimentation because they'd never had to deal with it before. Mm-hmm. Because the ladies going up in the space shuttle take that suit off and go to the bathroom, right? First thing they tried was the catheter. Yeah. But it was very painful to have that catheter in you. Next thing they tried was shaving and putting a suction cup on there and having the tube come off the suction cup. The suit weighs about 70 pounds, and you can sweat profusely in that thing at times. And that suction cup was coming loose. So the last thing they came up with, was a disposable diaper. Of course. But it ain't a normal diaper. It's like a $3,000 girdle-looking contraption that Mm -hmm. has zippers on the side and everything, and it's got all kinds of chemicals in there that change the liquid into a solid instantaneously. And that diaper is most famous for that lady astronaut who was mad at her husband Mm -hmm. or boyfriend or whatever, and she drove nonstop from Houston to Florida wearing one of those diapers, so she was trying to cover her tracks by not stopping for gas. Yeah. The diaper's famous. For the wrong reason. All right, that's output. What about input? Input, they prefer that we drink Gatorade and water. The reason is, once again, very bizarre. Inside your helmet, it's kind of like a diver's helmet. you got this neoprene seal around your face mm-hmm. inside the helmet. 
And the visor, it's got a gold-plated visor and has little filaments running through it for heat, like your rear window in your car. And on top of that, you've got pure oxygen blowing across your face. And so if you don't blink a lot, your eyes can dry up. The combination of the three, the heat, the uh, pressure, and the, uh, the airflow. So we drink copious amounts of Gatorade. And there's a little port on the right side of the helmet where you can take a container with Gatorade with a hard straw on it and push through that port into your mouth and then grab onto that straw, lift the container up, and squeeze some juice in. Now, we got to eat. And so there are two entities in the government that use tube food to this day. Tube food, just what it looks like. It looks like a toothpaste tube. It's got food in it. It might say beef and gravy on it. It might say apple slice on it or whatever. We use it because we're in that spacesuit. And the other guys that use it are the Abrams tanks because the Abrams tanks can seal up uh-huh. when they're in a chemical environment. And so to save space inside that Abrams tank for the crew, they also have tubes of tube food to keep them alive. They don't have MREs and stuff right. like that in there. It takes up too much space if you think you're going to be in that chemical environment for a long time. Uh, anyway, Gerber's makes it. And if I squeezed it out on your finger and you taste it, you'd spit it out. But when you're up in altitude, you're hungry, and we actually have a heater. We have a little heater about the size of a toothpaste box. You drop that thing in there. It's a silver metal tube, and you turn on a little timer. When it's ready, you screw that adapter on. The only problem is when you squeeze it in your mouth the first time, you could burn your tongue because you have no idea how hot it is. Now, Brian Scholl and his boys, they didn't use the heater. They just held the tube up against the windshield because the windshield was so damn hot. They could just hold it up in, you know, the glove uh, protected them from the heat, but they would hold mm-hmm. the tube up against the windshield to heat up their tube. Oh, that's good stuff. Oh my gosh. Well, Lips, you, you have been uh, as colorful as I'd hoped and as informative as I would have wished. And this is really amazing. What did I not ask you that I and the listener needs to know about the U2 and the program and the history and everything else as much as you're allowed to? Well, both the SR and the U2 is a one mistake program. You make a mistake and uh, you simply, they just simply move you back to where you came from. No hurt, no foul, but you're no longer in the program. They can't allow potential for incident or whatever because the profound political consequences of something going wrong out there in bad guy country. So I've seen SR guys that got in trouble for screwing up a simulator ride. Thank God we don't have a simulator in the U2. But uh, yeah, you make a mistake and they take a very dim view of it. So just like uh, Gus Grissom, you're always going there. Please, yeah. I've got, don't let me screw the pooch. Don't let me screw the pooch. You're, that's always in the back of your mind. Well, but the benefit of that is that you try really, really hard. Yeah, yeah. You try really, really hard and uh, take a lot of pride in what you do. And uh, as long as you get the job done, they're not too concerned if you cut corners. So we had a lot of freedom to make decisions, to do whatever it takes to get that information back. Because uh, like I said, some missions... Yeah. The president was waiting on it. You just never knew who was going to be the re- receiving end of the information you got. Wow. Good stuff, Lips. Uh, all right. So what's the future for you? I mean, you retired twice, so you got the rocking chair. And Oh, man, I just couldn't be happier. I got my 66 or 67 oh, right. Chevelle SS out in the driveway. I got a British... Uh, War yeah. bike, war motorcycle, an old uh, you know, Royal Infield. That's, I did okay. that for my coffee car, you know. And my kid's in college. He wants to join the Navy. I don't know where it went wrong in my life. He saw the light. Oh, that's awesome. 
Well, it's good to hear lips. And if uh, the COVID situation allows, it'd be fun to high five sometime if our paths ever cross, because that's my biggest regret with this whole thing, apart from, of course, people getting hurt. But from our point of view, who otherwise haven't been too affected, it's just, I used to do all my interviews in person. I mean, I flew up to Sacramento, rented a car and went and saw Brian. If you think I'm going <laughs> to sit down in a room with you after you've touched Brian, it ain't going to happen. I think we touched okay? each other. I, I'm a Navy guy, so he was a little bit leery. Uh, at any rate, no, it, it would be good to do these in person, but it was, it was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. So, all right. So we talked about Magellan. Well, like I said, it's supposed to be fun. Yeah. It was just such an adventure and it's, of course, we're really restricted in what we can talk about. And so we really relish being able to talk to people, but people have genuine questions they want to ask. And I'm just not at liberty. And I know it kind of takes the fun out of it. No, 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 no. It's fine. I mean, people just appreciate hearing from you because you have these firsthand experiences. And even if you don't tell them it's the 1.21 gigawatts, like uh, mm -hmm. the professor said, right, for Back to the Future. Okay, big deal. I mean, we still know what you did, how you did it, and the, the human side of it. And I think that's what people really enjoy. Joy. So thanks for your time today. Lastly, uh, we heard Magellan, but Lips, uh, is that just a play on Phillips? You know, that's what we told my mother before she died. But uh, <laughs> only between me and you. I know you won't share this with anybody, but it involved a, uh, a woman uh, in the Philippines. Uh, it involved uh, a gorilla with a rubber dilto, and it ended up with penicillin. So the squadron never let me live it down, and they've been calling me Lips for all those years in the air. I didn't answer to it for a year and they would, they were relentless. They wouldn't let it go. So clips, Phillips, so, long set and embarrassing story. A gorilla penicillin. All right, never mind. <laughs> it was, I blame it on the Marines. It was the Marines. I was a brand new officer and the, I fell in with the Marines out there in Cubic Bay, uh, Cubic Bay. And, um, they took me to a strip club and there was a gorilla guarding the stage with a rubber delto and the girl was doing the uh, banana show and the Marines are all saying, you know, Lieutenant, if you go up and suck that dilto, you can have that girl for free. And I'm thinking oh, that sounds like a good deal, you know, but it didn't uh, work out the way it was supposed to and ended up on a do not do not flying for eight to 10 days when I got back to the States. Uh, so so I'm, yeah, I'm, I blame it on the Marines. It wasn't my yeah. fault. I was young and impressionable. I'm looking at my watch here, Lips, and I think it's time to go <clears throat> uh, before <laughs> any one of us gets in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have delivered my regrets for making you wait for a year, but I appreciate you hanging on. And uh, we're going to air this one right away because otherwise I don't want you or your wife or your dog to say, wait a minute, we better not air all that. So uh, <laughs> this has been a lot of fun and we're certainly going to keep in touch and, and uh, appreciate your time today. Lips. All right. Well, Man, Lips is a character. Now, we usually try to keep these episodes family-friendly, but once in a while, you just have to go red light and some of these stories. Of course, they weren't that red, I would argue, Fish. I mean, he left something to the imagination. <laughs> Definitely, right? You know, I thought he kept it just above the PG yeah. level. <laughs> yeah, and we'll uh, we'll bleep a few things there. We've got that fun uh, master caution tone that we use uh, out of an F-18 <laughs> for when uh, folks uh, go a little too far. But at any rate, no, I just really enjoyed that. Just one of those aircraft, again, I didn't know that much about. Funny that he knew Brian Scholl. Should have probably called him and let him know he was going to do this, but uh, it would be a quite the scene to get those two guys together. But so I wrote down a couple of things that sometimes I say, wow, sometimes I want to expand on a little more, but what are your first uh, impressions before we drill down on some of these things, Fish? The thing that sticks out of my head the most, I couldn't believe about the aircraft was that right after takeoff, they could be at 10,000 feet before they hit the end of the runway, parking the nose at 60, 70 degrees. I never thought in a million years that an aircraft with wings that long and that straight 
would be able to do that. But when he prefaced it with, this was an F-104 Starfighter, <laughs> and it had greater than a one-to-one you know, thrust-to-weight ratio, I was like, yeah, that makes sense now. Okay. That's right. Um, but yeah, I was floored by that. Well, and he was talking about the wing being so light, you know, they yeah. would pick it up. So I assume some kind of crazy materials they're making them out of. Maybe these days, maybe in the old days, they made them out of something else. But again, it's been around a long time. Design is proven and it's clear that there is a need to have a man in the loop on these types of missions. So yep. yeah, really interesting. Now, uh, so you started off flying the S3, you told yes. us when we first met you. Mm-hmm. How many hours did you end up within that? I got just over a thousand. Okay. And the then only- you flew the F-18 for a while. Flew the F-18. How I got 850. That? 850. Okay. So it didn't quite get to a thousand. And I got 850 in the T-45. So uh-huh. it would have been really cool if I could have gotten a thousand <laughs> at three different Navy aircraft. Yeah, no but. doubt. Uh, yeah. I don't hear too many people talk about that, but I think it's interesting that, it, you know, it's an obvious milestone yeah. uh, as is your first hundred for that matter. But it just seemed to me if you only flew, let's see, I was thinking about doing public math, but I don't think I will. But if you're on a eight month deployment and you're only flying every four days, what's that? If it was a 28 day month, that's seven times in a month Yep. times eight is 56. Call it 10 is uh, 560 hours. So a couple deployments you might get there, but yeah, but that's still, I mean, only every four days. And I thought that was impressive. Yeah. And you just assumed eight month deployments. That sounds really, even though guys, I guess are doing that now. So, uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, he was talking about wearing civilian clothes and all that. I don't think it's quite like the carrier deployments, but speaking of that, that is quite interesting that they landed on a carrier and basically hovered down like a helicopter because oh, those giant wings. You know, Jello, my father-in-law has a picture of a U-2 landing on a carrier. I think um, there's videos too. It's, out there. Yeah, there's videos of it. And it's it's an awesome picture because it's they obviously make it, it's a really big picture. I think it's about, yeah. you know, it's longer than my wingspan. If I put my arms out, the picture is, yeah. Because, yeah, uh-huh. I mean, it's got to be to get that YouTube wingspan in it or mm-hmm. whatever. But it just really kind of puts it in perspective and people see that picture and they're like, is that a U-2? Yeah, it was done. Crazy. But you know what? I was thinking about when Lips was talking about this, and we didn't actually cover it during Elliot's question earlier, but that is, it's not just can the aircraft handle it, but what about the pilots? Oh, absolutely. Because as you know, having stood out (laughs) at the end of the runway, when we get ready to the boat, what do we do? We throw pass after pass after pass at you, and we get ready. Now, if you're in a U-2 and you can hover to land, maybe, I don't know, there's Maybe it's not so bad, but for an F-15 or F-16 pilot to suddenly come down and land, having never done that through training, because we do it in flight school, I'm sure you did in the T-45, right? And so it's not something you just go do. Before we even started FCLPs, which is the field carrier landing practice, Mm -hmm. we had to have like over 200 something landings that were all carrier type landings. That's right. So you had hundreds of landings before you, they even let you even think about going to the boat. So. I was thinking about his flight prep and I was reminded of the time I was CAG ops and I landed in the right seat of the E2. I don't, it was my only ever time flying in the front of the E2 as a midshipman. Uh I flew in the back and I kid you not, for whatever reason, I didn't do the math that day, but I landed and people were already manning up for the next go that I was a tanker pilot on. So I literally, the engines were still turning. (laughs) Dude, you got to let me out of this thing. I ran down, turned in my E2 gear, which was borrowed, ran to the PR shop, threw on my flight gear, ran up and still launched first. Oh my god. And gosh. so I was thinking to myself, by then, you know, you're so proficient you can do it, but his flight started a day before. Yeah. And a medical exam started your flight day, right? And you yeah. eat eat and then go get a medical exam three and a half hours prior to your launch. That's <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Probably not a lot of hiding uh, different 
ailments you might have as, as we sometimes talk about pilots are nothing's wrong with me until it's time to retire and then right. everything's wrong. <laughs> right. And it certainly gives you a much more extended, uh, bottle of the throttle or bottle of brief as we had before, right? Yeah, oh, no yeah, more, no true. more 12 hour bottle of brief. Mm-hmm. It's like a 36 hour. <laughs> yep. And then I, again, don't generally like correcting people, but I think when he was making the example of the uh, bends for deep sea divers, I think he said going down, but it's still for them going up. Right. It's just after they go down, but it's the problem of when you ascend in either environment that is the problem, but no big deal. Boy, I hope he doesn't get the men in black coming knocking on his door, and I don't either, because his talk about the U2 over LA with you or I jumping out of a plane or whatever he was saying in Las Vegas on the ramp, that's pretty impressive. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking the same thing as he was telling us a lot of this stuff. It was like, man, I I suppose he can talk about this. He would know better than us, but yeah. Let's hope. Well, and if he can say that, it makes me wonder what in fact they really can do, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there are people out there, maybe I would think they're cynical if it were me, but as far as are we worried about that? I'm not. I don't have anything to hide. Other people, Americans might be, but certainly I hope the enemy are concerned because that means we can tell what you're doing. And if you are nefarious, I love that word, then... (laughs) It certainly gives me a much higher comfort level of our ability to see other people. There you go. Ideally, we're only looking at the bad people. But again, if you believe certain things, maybe we're watching everyone. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. No fuel gauge. That struck me as really crazy. Oh, yeah. I mean... Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to say, know what to yeah, say about no that. Joke. It's like, okay, feels uh, overrated, right? And, and I guess it was what I was trying to say about the coffin corner, the whatever else you want to call it. There's all these things that you probably remember this fish. People say, wow, you land on aircraft care. And by the time you're midway through deployment, you don't even think about it in yeah. the daytime. At nighttime, you're always thinking, yeah, about it. at least uh, I yeah. did. I guess you get so good at something like the fuel planning or the flying backwards over Korea to land yeah. or the, golly, what else did he talk about? That it just after, oh yeah, the coffin corner thing. After a while, it's just one of those things. You just kind of do it. And, yeah. and I guess for people who are out there like, musicians you know sometimes they're not even thinking about the strings on their guitar they're plucking or the keys on the piano whatever i I don't know yeah going back to care and landings i remember that was what they're trying to get us to do is they're trying to make all of our movements second nature so you didn't have to think about them anymore so Mm -hmm. you get it comfortable enough in the u2 and you know five knots of slop you're five knots this way or that way and you're just used to it this is your comfort zone yeah well, I mean, if he can dial those little wheels uh, back or forth to get within one knot of something, yeah, right. I guess it's probably not so bad. <laughs> and again, he made the point, which I loved, is, hey, there's a time where you're really paying attention. Right. In other words, you're not napping, you're not eating and drinking, and that sounded painful, by the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Gosh. <laughs> but you're not using the facilities as it were. You are in the zone at that time. And so yeah. that all makes sense. Just like night care landings exactly. for us, right? During the daytime. Say. Although that's where you get yourself in trouble during the daytime. You're like, oh, just another day trap. This is great. And then you, you know, screw yeah. something away but at nighttime you were always on your game you oh didn't... yeah no credit for a kill i thought that was messed up but you know maybe someday this guy will get a retroactive kill yeah the, absolutely the, the was, um... that ran out of gas <laughs> or whatever it was. yeah yeah <laughs> right and then the uh the only last thing i had and then i don't know if you had anything else but the zero defect mentality as he alluded with the no mistakes i think i get it the idea being look you come prepared not that any other aviation is necessarily forgiving but for what they're doing international type stuff right oh yeah um, i mean you're, you're talking yeah. national security you're yeah. talking gary powers getting shot down in yeah. 1955 whatever it was i can't mm-hmm. remember a lot of secrets are at stake if you go down in a u2 so you can't afford to you got to be on your game yeah. all the time yeah or the sr-71 sounds yeah. like uh, was the case oh yeah so, right yeah 
All right, man. Well, that was amazing. What else? Did you tell me before we started rolling, you have some family connection? Or oh, you gosh. Yeah. So um, it was really fun listening to this episode because right off the bat, he started talking about Tripoli uh-huh. and living there, being born, I guess, in, in Tripoli. My mother-in-law actually lived in Tripoli for three years because oh. her dad was an F-86 pilot. I must have been in the 17th Air Force. Um, okay. Didn't have time to research this. They lived there for three years. And then uh, they said they were evacuated out of there. I wonder if she was just alluding to when the 17th Air Force moved to Ramstein. Okay. Of course, probably not the stablest environment. So maybe it was an evacuation. Maybe tensions were heightened. So that was really kind of fun. So my mother-in-law lived there the same time as Lips. <laughs> um, they were on that same base. And um, Wheelis, by the way, so we're looking at it on Wikipedia. It was a booming base. They had a bowling alley. They had a high school right. for 500, uh, school for 500. Yeah, I think a high school for 500 kids. This was no like little outpost. This was a full on Air Force base huh. with tons of stuff on it. But anyway, yeah, so kind of neat connection there. Of course, later on, I, uh, so my father in law, though, when he was the CEO of Siganella, NAS Siganella out in uh, Sicily, they actually had U-2 stationed on their base at the time. In fact, he would say that the U-2 is the uh, only aircraft who keeps whining after its engines are shut down. (laughs) (laughs) So, but uh, no, they had the, while he was there, the Air Force came to him and said, will we be able to station U-2s here? And they had a brand new hangar that was supposed to be used for something else. They said, yes, they put it in there and they had U-2s there. And my wife actually got to ride in the chase car one day. Oh, wow. So she got to get that whole experience of going 100 miles per hour and, you know, screeching out and burning out those Goodyear radials (laughs) to catch up to the plane. (laughs) This was when she was a kid. This was when she was, so she was, um, she was a college student at the time. So she was home. Um, on her summer break and got to ride in the chase car. Nice. Um, yeah. So, you know, some really <laughs> neat connections like that. And then of course I mentioned earlier that, uh, my new neighbor just lives yeah. just down the street from me and I fly with him. We were just doing red air together yesterday. He was a U2 pilot. Okay. He did that for six years. Yeah. So well, and, they're still uh, making them. There's probably father, son. Uh, you're right. There, yeah. You know? There probably is. Yeah, yeah. There's probably father, son, U2 pilots, which is or daughter, pretty neat. Uh, daughter. Yeah. yeah. Right. Daughter's next. So, although, so my friend, Justin, he was the, the U2 pilot. Uh-huh. He said it has a relief tube, so you can't defecate in there. You can pee. It has a relief tube. And he said that's, the girls can't use the relief tube. It's not made so you can use it. So they actually wear diapers right. is what he yeah, said. Yeah. Lips so was describing those yeah, astronaut right. style diapers. So, yeah. So, yeah. um, you know? <laughs> eh, moving on. I mean, when you're, yeah, on a, right. when you're on a long mission, you've got yeah, to do these right, different you things. You got to do what you got to do. Here, I was complaining about the peanut butter and jelly I made in the wardroom before I launched, and at least it's not coming through a tube. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, like toothpaste. <laughs> but eh, do what you got to do. So yeah, yeah, sounds amazing. Thanks again to Lips and uh, Presley. I believe it was his dog, um, but no problem. You know, we get what we get on this. In fact, it's funny. I'm sitting here looking at you, and I don't know the last time I've done an interview in person. That was all I did. For pre-COVID. And then all I've done is remote. And here we are now. And I'm going to say we're more than six feet, but we're not wearing our masks. Oh, don't tell anyone. But uh, no, thanks a lot, Lips. And uh, he brought some really interesting color to the show, but I just really enjoyed learning about the YouTube. Yeah, I did too. Uh, great interview, Jello. Uh, a lot of fascinating information in there. Awesome. Um, that was a lot of fun. Thank you. I probably you. should have asked him if that's where the rock band U2 uh, got their name, but I don't know. Ooh. Maybe that's something else. I don't think Good they hyphenate question. themselves. Now I'm going to 
Wikipedia uh, that and we'll see what it back. says. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back <laughs> for uh, next episode. All right, well, we can transition to wrapping up then. You heard in the interview there, we talked about the various Patreon folks who help support the show. Uh, we really do appreciate them. And if you head over to patreon.com and search for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, you can join the ranks. We have about 475 folks that do support the show. And it doesn't just help keep the show going. They really do get cool things. Everything from early release of the episode to merchandise to 30-minute debriefs and even a mention on the show. So we do have a new strike lead, Jeremy Hasby, and a new mission commander, Akita Adams. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So, Fish, thanks for returning today. What's the future for you, man? Just uh, living in Coronado, flying out of North Island, just going to keep soaking your feet in the sand man i just can't wait until uh covid is over my kids can go back to school and i can get <laughs> on to some other ventures um because the flying's fun and living in coronado is fun but uh yeah. i got a lot that i wanted to do that covid's really just putting yeah. a wet blanket on but yeah. um i can't complain life's All good right. good well and, and your hair looks good with a, a little bit of length to it. i tried that but uh, it didn't look too good on me so anyway well thanks for returning i don't know what other black jets we've got coming up but we'll give you a call when we do <laughs> i'll be looking for it thanks. all right fantastic and for everyone else We'll see you back here next time for the beginning of a two-part series on surface-to-air threats. Take it easy. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. All right, Fish, it says here that in March 1978, the group changed their name to U2, uh, and because of the different potential names they had, they said they picked that one because of its ambiguity and open-ended interpretations. I wonder what other interpretations there are of U2. That sounds like a... uh Oh, what was that? What's that website you can go to where you find out what all those uh, <laughs> snopes or something? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember, but um, that's ambiguous. Okay. <laughs> it also says here it's because it was the name the band disliked the least. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.